Welcome back to the Axiom Podcast, where we talk to Latinx figures in and around Hollywood to reflect on the history of Latinx film and creators, where we hope to see change. This week, I am hope to be, I'm happy to be joined by Professor Laura Isabel Serna, author and associate professor of history and cinematic studies at USC, to talk about her expertise in film history and the stereotypes that films have given the Latinx community from all the way to silent age to now. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Serna. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So just to get straight into it, you teach a course in the Cinema and Media Studies Division about Latino and Latina screen culture. We were just talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, What led you to become a professor and in that particular study of like film history? That's a great question. So the course that I teach is trans-historical. So we kind of talk a little bit about the past. We talk about um, major moments, and then we talk about the presence as a way of trying to understand what the media landscape looks like today for Latinx people, both on screen and behind the screen. And I became interested, so I'm trained as a cultural historian, and I was really interested in how media moves across borders. And there are a lot of people who study this. Some of the people study it today because as you probably know, there's lots of media that's being produced in one place and then circulating in other places. And especially what we might think of as the Latino market is really diverse um, linguistically and in terms of where it's located, right? So sometimes product is made for uh, a broad audience. Sometimes it's made for US born Latinos. Sometimes it's made um, in Latin America with the hopes that US Latinos will take, take up a certain kind of media. So what led me to my topic, which my first book is about film culture in greater Mexico. And by that, I mean on both sides of the border because in the 19 teens and twenties, although there were distinct aspects of life for migrants in the US, they really shared a culture with their compatriots who were still in Mexico. And so I was looking at silent cinema, which generally Mexico's silent cinema production was really artisanal. And by that, I mean, like you might make a film, get people to invest, make a film. And if it did well, you might have enough money to make another film. And there were a couple kind of important companies that made several films, but usually it was a co- uh, companies or groups of friends who made one film. <laughs> and then that was it. And generally audiences really wanted first European films and then films that were made in the United States. It's really interested in the idea of what Mexican audiences were making of American films in Mexico in the teens. Because that wasn't a story I'd heard when I'd studied immigration history. There was this idea that um, Mexican migrants only encountered American culture once they crossed the border. Um, that that was the first time they ever like saw a film or, you know, um, you know, read about a movie star, et cetera. And that was absolutely untrue. Um, American films circulated in Mexico pretty widely, mostly in the capital because it was big and there was lots of people and people had disposable income to go to the movies, but also in the most remote places that you could imagine parts of the country. And so Mexicans in Mexico, maybe not the most isolated or the poorest, were exposed to American film culture and ethnic Mexican communities in the United States were likewise immersed in American film culture because that's what was available, that's what was screened, um, and they loved it just as much as anybody else. Um, So that was really what piqued my interest and got me 
kind of engaged in being a film historian and doing this kind of research. And when you're teaching your students, what are some of like the topics that you bring up that kind of leaves them like in shock just because that's something they had never like thought of or like ever heard of? Hmm. Well, there's a lot because um, it's 2021. <laughs> and, and so, for example, 1908 seems really ancient <laughs> to people. Um, I think one of the things that really shocks students, to be honest, is how little things have changed in a certain way, right? So in, the, in really early film, uh, there's tons of stereotypes of, and the, and the industry kind of thought about it as Spanish or Latin, or, you know, they often weren't very specific about what group it was they were trying to portray. Sometimes they were, like if there were films that were set in, on the U.S.-Mexico border or in Texas, um, or in old California, which was a really favorite setting. Um, but people, but so ethnic Mexicans generally didn't have credited roles. Um, so when they did, it might be like as peon or as uh, bandit or just Mexican, like kind of generic Mexican. Um, and often the, the characters that they were asked to portray were bandits, peons, greasers, there was a whole cycle of greaser films um, in the aughts. And so these were not fully developed characters. Like I'd say the white characters got to be heroic and complicated, et cetera. And these other characters, or they were just extras, right? In the background, um, giving the film the feel of this place. Um, and then there was a really small group in the 1920s of Mexicans who became film stars, right? These are the names that we know, Ramon Novato, Dolores Del Rio, Lupe Velez, who became well-known and were allowed into Hollywood. Um, and this actually seems very similar to the way things are today, right? That most Mexican actors, Mex ethnic Mexican actors, and we probably could have a long discussion about Latin American versus US born Latino um, talent, but get cast in, you know, the maid, the gang member, the whatever it is, like um, girl on the street, et cetera. And there are fewer roles for kind of fully developed roles for Latino talent um, that either they're stars or they they're credited and have speaking roles. And this, there's lots of research. Annenberg does research on this. UCLA does research on this. Um, it shows that we really haven't made that much movement. Um, they're also kind of shocked to learn how militant uh, media activists were in the 1960s and 1970s. That in the 1960s and 1970s, a lot of the activism that was happening was really about access to the means of production. Um, people were less, people were concerned about representation, but they were more concerned about getting their hands on cameras getting the ability to tell stories. Um, and a lot of that activism bore fruit in the arena of public television, um, which is why you had a lot of documentary style programs or films that were produced because that kind of conformed to what public television was looking at or public affairs programs um, where people would talk about issues that were really important. But a lot of, kind of early Chicano filmmakers kind of cut their teeth on public television and on documentary. 
Um, there was even, and this is something that I'm trying to learn more about, a training program in the early 80s at USC that was sponsored by bilingual children's television. Um, and the elements of the films that were made are in the Hugh Hefner archive at USC, which is the film school's archive. And, but there's really little documentation of the program and how it was funded and who participated, et cetera. So I'm trying to do a little bit of historical research to find out more about that. Um, yeah. Have you, you mentioned like the political activism and I mm -hmm. think like in the early 1900s, uh, since Hollywood is so uh, dominated by unions and union power, uh, where actors and like screenwriters and all that are able to voice their opinions and strike whenever they feel they're not getting the they're just like wages and all that. Is is there other examples of like the political activism that you just mentioned right now where Latinos were kind of in the forefront, but like you said with the Hugh Hefner of archives where it's really not there, but they were back then they were actually a really a significant part of that activism. Well, I I put it this way. So the guilds really become powerful in the 1930s um, and the 1940s. And there are, there may be some actors in the Screen Actors Guild, but um, really Latinos are not in those kinds of creative positions until later. Um, in the very early part of the 20th century, I would say there's more audience activism. So there are incidences of Spanish language newspapers. So there's this whole network of Spanish language newspapers in the United States where people are writing really early on about the way that they, the films that they're seeing show stereotypes and that they're not only offended, but that these stereotypes affect their daily lives, right? It affects the, for example, in Texas, it affects white Anglo-Texans views, which are already predominantly negative of Mexican immigrants. Um, and it's really not until I'd say the 1960s or 70s, you know, that when the EEOC is um, formed, that's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, it's formed in the late 1960s and begins to investigate different industries. One of the industries that they investigate is Hollywood, but that seems to be repeating itself. Um, because that is that happened again quite recently, where I think Joaquin Castro said, you know, we need to look into like what is going on in Hollywood, why Latinos aren't being hired, et cetera. So there's a bit of a kind of cyclic quality to it. And usually the activism has come from the outside the industry, like people wanting to be let in rather than people in the industry kind of um, making claims. I mean, people in the industry do other things, right? Um, yeah. They establish award shows, they establish organizations, uh, like kind of support organizations. And this I'm thinking more in the 80s and the 90s, um, which now it seems long ago, but wasn't actually that long ago. Yeah. Um, there was, you did a project uh, where you tracked kind of the early silent film era of like uh, silent films and the manufacturing that kind of really stood out to me in, in your website where you listed that the manufacturing of uh, Mexican stereotypes. Um, can you kind of go into depth in that? And then also kind of tracing the progression of how it was then to later decades, because I know like for me, like growing up, although I didn't think about it that way, I was like, oh, I see like a lot of the people that look like me are playing gangsters or putting gangs, mm -hmm. uh, drug drug cartels and all that even now with like narcos and all yeah that. um so I, I guess if you could kind of elaborate on that 
Okay, well, um, so one of the things that I became interested in after I finished my book was kind of how um, ideas about race become naturalized by how they're on, shown on screen. And Hollywood worked really hard in this early era to produce certain kinds of what I would call um, uh, racial politics of visuality, right? So using a kind of shorthand that involved costumes or makeup. So often Latino characters would be played by white actors in brown face, which is not something that's received a lot of research. Um, and people were really specific about what they thought would suggest South America, Latin America, Mexico, the past, et cetera, and use makeup and costuming and sets and props to create these kind of what I would, I think I would think about them as stock characters, right? So when someone saw it, it would be instantly recognizable. So I'm working right now on an essay that's actually about Mexican extras in the teens and the 20s. Um, I mean, most people have said, you know, there weren't very many opportunities for Latinos in early Hollywood. And that's true if the opportunities you're looking for are starring roles or creative roles, et cetera. But one place where Mexicans were actually really desired and found work was it, as extras. And as we know, extra work is precarious, right? You can't live off it. It's intermittent. You might get, you know, a week's worth of work then you don't work for a long time, et cetera. So it depended very much on relationships at that time. So there were these kind of figures who served as intermediaries between the community and the industry. Um, but thinking about extras as another tool that producers use to create narratives about race um, in which it was very clear who were the protagonists and who were the kind of backdrop. Um, who were just kind of part of the setting or the location. Um, and I, so I look at that, I found some records of Mexicans being paid and they were definitely consistently paid less than other performers, even though they were really desirable for their willingness to do dangerous stunts, um, to do horsemanship, like to perform horsemanship if they had horse skills or to dance or, and play music. Right? So they have these skills that were in, in high demand for certain types of stories, but then they were consistently paid less um, than other kinds of other extras even, like 50% less. And if you look at the Spanish language press though, there's an interesting kind of inversion of that narrative where, because there's this whole, I don't know if it's a subgenre or um, what you would what you would call it, but of Mexicans from Mexico who have come to the United States, they're interested in working in the industry, they end up working as extras, and then these are kind of more educated, um, literate people, and they write for magazines about their experience, like what was it like to be an extra? <laughs> and in their narratives, extra work is really noble, right? That, um, that the extras are what makes the film. Um, these all these Mexicanos that are there are what is like impacting the aesthetics of the film and how successful it's going to be and that they really do bring a lot to the table. So they really kind of position their labor in a different way than they are because in the English language um, trade press, just like today, so there was lots of articles about behind the scenes like 
production culture, right? This is like what's going on. And Mexicans in those articles in the English language press are always the butt of a joke that they kind of don't understand what making a movie is. And they're desperately hungry, so they'll work for nothing. Um, and they're just interested in lunch and like they're very, it's very offensive um, the way that they're portrayed. But then in the Spanish language press, it's a kind of inversion of that where these are people who are in control of what they're doing, um, who do have agency and can kind of work against those stereotypes. So I think the idea of stereotyping, and I was thinking as we were talking about, um, I don't know, I like law and order because I'm very much like a lady of a certain age, okay, <laughs> right? Um, but, and they often have these Latino characters that give the main characters an opportunity to speak their kind of okay Spanish, um, to kind of gesture towards an audience that might be bilingual or kind of um, diverse in some way, but then they kind of go straight back into English and that dominates the narrative um, after they've made this kind of small gesture to a, a wider audience. And I find that fascinating because it's, it's so, um, to me at least, like pandering uh, <laughs> uh, to the audience. I have one last question for you. And it's kind of a lot of the work that you do is like obviously on history, but I guess kind of placing it on now of uh, there's obviously, like you mentioned earlier with activism, it comes usually from the outside in. And in terms of diversity, we've seen it with like the Oscar so white movement. Um, we've seen a lot of the studies from USC Annenberg mm -hmm. that show that Latinos are the second highest demographic that go to the movies. Um, but yet they're barely represented on screen. And then on Sunday, this Sunday uh, with the Oscars, I know people don't really like to pay attention to them anymore, but it is important to like see who's being awarded or nominated. Uh, we had a few Latinos, uh, you had Best International Feature, like the Mole Agent from Chile, a couple of members from the sound crew of Sound of Metal got nominated. And then most notably Shaka King, um, for best picture for Judas and the Black Messiah. Mm -hmm. um, I guess for you, where do you see, where do you hope to see like the industry change in terms of inclusivity and whether you kind of alluded it to, or, to it earlier where you feel like it's kind of the same, um, but I guess kind of the trends that you're noticing and that you hope to see. Well, I mean, I think that one thing that I would like to see or that I hope to see, and I do think about the present a lot actually, um, you know, historians are always interested in how the past informs the present. Um, so I would, you know, is to see um, solidarity amongst groups that are minoritized. Um, so th there's a really smart young scholar who's going to be starting as an assistant professor at UC Irvine, who wrote about the Oscar so white kind of controversy between Latinx Twitter and Black Twitter, where Latinx people were like, well, what about us, you know? Um, and it became kind of a point of tension between the two groups as opposed to working together. Um, so there was a moment and I did watch the Oscar. I was like the one person who watched the Oscar telecast, but um, it was because I'm teaching a class about award shows, but um, so I felt like I had to, but um, where the makeup artists from, um, oh gosh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, yeah, called out like a lot of different people from the stage not just black women. They were like, we want to see all of these people on this stage accepting awards. Um, but I actually think that there is going to be a need for audience activism, that when audiences say we want this thing, that is what 
corporations within essentially the film industry, the commercial film industry is a business that wants to make money. Um, and so when consumers slash audiences say, we demand X, right? Or we want more of this and it becomes kind of a groundswell. I mean, you can see, for example, and I don't think that representation is enough. So there's this great essay by this woman, Kristen Warner, um, who talks about the concept of plastic representation. And, and part of her premise is like, you know, what good is it if we just make friends, but with brown people? Like just inserting brown or black bodies into narratives that are not about our communities or don't kind of challenge any of the old stories doesn't really get us very far. And that's where I think some of the most exciting things are happening, right? So people are, there's a database of directors now of Latinx directors that's been created because in response to the idea, well, we can't find someone, right? Um, because really the people with the power to shape what a, a film or a TV series look like are showrunners, right? Or are producers or directors, right? The people who can say, I want my set to look like this and I want to cast these kind of people or I want my writer's room to have this, this kind of diversity um, in it, right? Because it's not enough just to kind of change the color of the person on the screen without changing this kind of the staffing and back. The ecosystem, yeah. Yeah, the ecosystem, who has creative control, mm -hmm. right? Who gets to tell the stories, et cetera. And that to me is where like the most interesting changes can happen, yeah. right? Um, is when, when that kind of business side or high, like high level creative side um, really starts to change. Yeah, I, it's something that I feel like we have to grapple with in terms of Hollywood is essentially run by a lot of these corporations where the bottom line is just to make money. So as bittersweet as it sounds, the only way to kind of make sure that our voices are heard and like we're seen like on the screen is by showing up and making making it so that uh these executives see like the money we're make that the money that it's making like on behalf of our community and that'll get them to make more films it's kind of a bittersweet as i mentioned when when you say it like that but i feel like that's kind of like the harsh reality i guess yeah i mean there is a kind of like you know like one day at a time gets canceled on netflix yep. We don't know why, actually, because we don't have any access to the numbers, the true numbers, yeah. right? And so, but people made a lot of noise about it, which didn't make them keep mm -hmm. it, but definitely raised the profile and said, like, you keep like greenlighting these shows for a little minute and then taking them away. Yeah. Um, and that's not what we want. But yeah, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, film and media, it's a creative industry you know, there's a tension there between producing art and making yeah. money. And I don't think that most production companies or executives are going to do things necessarily, not because they have ill intent, but aren't going to do something out of the goodness of their heart per se, <laughs> because they think it's the right thing to do. Although, you know, there's some pressure to be applied in terms of social justice and what does it look like, but it's kind of ridiculous that the Latino population is so large and, and we love to go to the movies with all our cousins. Yep. <laughs> um, and, and yet, you know, we have so little 
that is made specifically for us. Uh, Hopefully we see some improvement over the next coming years and all that, but thank you, Professor Sardina for joining me today. Um, If people are interested in finding out about your work and the research that you're doing, where can people find that information and all that? People can find me on my USC website. Um, I have a profile in cinema studies division and also in history. So I'm easily reachable um, if people want to talk to me or people want to find out more about what I'm up to right now. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. It was a pleasure.